Uh, let's stand and read John chapter 11 together as a church. We're going to go to verse 16 today. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus, of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sisters sent word to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, This sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were, were just now seeking to stone you, and you are going to go back there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. This he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. The disciples then said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he was speaking of literal sleep. So Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I'm glad for your sakes so that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Therefore Thomas, who is called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, so that we may die with him. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for your word. We uh, love to, to learn from you. And we love how your Holy Spirit teaches us truth that we need to hear on a, on a weekly basis. All of us have a different walk with you in different stages. And all of us have things to learn about who you are. Um, whether we've been Christians for... 25, 30 years, or whether we're just searching out truth for the first time. So I just ask your spirit, will speak to our hearts and our minds today, in Christ's name. Amen. Well, welcome back to John, the book of John. We're going to resume, obviously, here in chapter 11, a famous chapter where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Um, before we jump in, though, I want to do a healthy introduction, because uh, it's been a while, for one reason. And secondly, um, we've had some new people join our church, and so they haven't had the privilege of knowing what's been going on for the first 11 chapters. But the raising of Lazarus from the dead is significant in this gospel, because it happens to be the last sign or miracle John records in his book. There were seven miracles that John recorded, and I think we should look at them now, on the, uh, just to refresh your memory. Uh, the first sign he did was in chapter 2. He turned the water into wine during a wedding at Cana. The second sign was in chapter 4, where he healed our royal official son. Uh, the third miracle was in chapter 5, the healing of a lame man at the pool of Bethesda. Uh, sign, uh, sign 4 was in chapter 6, the feeding of the 5,000, which actually was probably more like 20,000 because all it was was 5,000 men, didn't include women and children. So it's probably 20,000 people, pretty close to the size of Okotoks in one, in one feeding, to give you an idea of the size of it. Uh, sign 5 in chapter 6 was Christ walking on water. Um, 
sign six in chapter, sorry, did I say sign five or six? Or? You should define it, you're good. I'm good. <laughs> uh, sign six in chapter nine, the healing of the blind man outside of the temple in Jerusalem. And today, uh, over the next two or three weeks, we'll be looking at sign number seven, the raising of Lazarus. Now, the fact that he chose these seven miracles to put in the gospel is very significant. And for those of you who've been with us for a while, will know why. But um, in John chapter 21, uh, he had many signs and miracles he, he could have chosen from. Because it says there that there were also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. He, John would have witnessed, and the disciples would have witnessed thousands, probably thousands of miracles in three years that Jesus did. And he chose these seven. He chose these seven. So they're really important for us to grasp. And remember, the, the significance was that he wanted to bring his readers through these seven miracles to a belief that Jesus was the Christ, and that through that belief that they would give their lives to him and then inherit eternal life. You'll also remember that it's really important to understand these seven miracles in context of the Jewish feasts and festivals. Every time there was a Jewish feast or festival in the first ten chapters, and a miracle was performed at them. So what he was doing was he was making a statement because when Israel was celebrating this feast and festival, um, it was the Old Testament context that they were celebrating it from. They knew about God's work in, in Israel's history. They knew about the relationship with them, and each festival and feast provided an opportunity for them to remember a characteristic of God or something God did in their history in terms of their redemption or deliverance. And so everything about the feast was a celebration about who God was and who He and what He'd done for them. So when Jesus performed these seven miracles over these feasts, he was making a declaration about himself in relationship to Israel. And in, compare, in comparing himself to say, I am that God, that same God that you are celebrating back in the Old Testament. Very significant we understand those things. I want to give you a really cool example from John chapter 6. Because if again you may have forgotten, or maybe I just didn't teach on it to the degree I should have back then. Because this is something I've been learning myself. Um, but I want to give you two, one, one really cool example. Look at um, sign number uh, 5 and 6. Sorry, that's not true. Sign number uh, four and five. The feeding of the 5,000 and Christ walking in water. Notice they both occur in chapter six. If you look back, Jesus had just celebrated the Passover with his disciples. He heads for Galilee after the Passover and performs these two signs. He feeds the 5,000 and then he walks on water as well. Now, can, before we move on here, can you think of any events in the Old Testament involving water and bread after a Passover celebration. After the Exodus? Yeah. What happened after the Exodus from Egypt? Involving bread. The manna from heaven. And anything to do with water? Rock, yeah. Right, rock from the water, okay? So here we have God in the Old Testament providing after the Passover for Israel in the Old Testament with bread and water from heaven. And Jesus now, after Passover, says, I'm going to give you guys a picture here. I'm going to take care of you with water and bread from heaven. Because he created it out of nothing. Right? Or sorry, you're walking on water was actually didn't create, but he was just demonstrating his power over nature and creation. <coughs> creation. 
extremely cool when you look at it that way. Because you think, why would John put the walking on water in his gospel? That's a declaration based on after Passover, making the Israelites look back at their history and go, oh my goodness, this is God in the flesh. So in the Old Testament, it's the, new, it's the first exodus of the people, um, creating a new people of God in the first exodus. God's provisionary care of them in the wilderness, but the covenant sign was the law. Right? The old covenant was the law. Here, Jesus is inaugurating a new covenant, a, a, a new exodus inaugurated by Jesus, but it's not through the law, it's by faith in him and the law written on their hearts. It's, it's an absolute wonderful understanding when you, when, you, when you look at it this way. Is it, like, the, the parallels, like, is that something that gets taught very often? No. I don't think so. <laughs> well, I've never heard it in my yeah. life of yeah. going to church. And then, was it taught back then? The parallel aspect of one of Was it brought as, here's why? Okay. Yeah. Do you think it came for, I don't know. Yeah, good question, Jeff. I, in terms of uh, what Jesus was doing, he wasn't doing these things accidentally because he understood, of course, what he was trying to teach the fellow Israelites. But... When I said no to, I made it not fair. I don't know. I'm not. I haven't participated in many churches. Like you know, I've only been to a few, probably consistently. So, but yeah, people don't usually emphasize these things. But yeah. likely at seminary or Bible college or things, these things would get taught more exclusively. So, yeah. So it's not a coincidence then that John puts these things where he does and, and highlights the seven miracles that he does. Mm -hmm. So one of my goals for you, us then is to clearly understand what Jesus was declaring to Israel and to us about why he raised Lazarus from the dead. So, you know, just to learn that he was resurrected is, you know, there's power in that, but I want you to understand it was done at the Feast of Dedication. So we'll understand the Feast of Dedication and say what was happening in Israel's history that was around that festival and what does the raising of Lazarus have to do with the Feast of Dedication? We'll hit that two weeks from now. This is, uh, next week we'll be not even getting there yet, so, okay? <laughs> So, but that's two weeks from now. Okay, so that's a good waggle on the T. But I think it's necessary because it's been a while since I've been in John and it's pretty cool when you see that. Uh, that's why we have to do such a long intro. Well, let's get into the text. Look at verse 1. We get a, a biography of, of Lazarus um, in the first uh, three or four verses. The first thing we learn about this guy is where he was from. It says, Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and Martha, her, sorry, village of Mary and her sister, Martha. The village of Bethany, I hope you can see this. I'll have to stand up because it's pretty small. But there's two Bethanies in, um, in, Jerus or in, in Palestine. So Jerusalem is right here on the map. Now Bethany is two miles away, just uh, to the east, right here. But you'll also see another Bethany here beyond the Jordan River. Okay, there's the Jordan River. So we have a Bethany two miles from Jerusalem. We have a Bethany that's more famous in the Bible, which is quite a ways away near the Dead Sea by the Jordan River. So the Bethany here that they're from is that he's from is the one two miles from Jerusalem. And how we know this is verse 18. It says, Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. So we know that there's, that's how we can substantiate that this was the Bethany that he was talking about. So we know that he was from Bethany, a small little village. The second thing we learn in the biography is that he had other siblings. 
Uh, Lazarus wasn't an only child. He had two sisters named Martha and Mary. We see that also in verse 1. Um, Mary is defined in verse 2 as the one who's anointed uh, Jesus. His feet were their hair. Now, what's interesting is uh, we don't actually encounter that story until chapter 12. So, in chapter 12, we're going to see the anointing of Jesus by Mary. But the reason why John puts it here is because there are other Marys in the scriptures. And by the time this is read, he's trying to help his readers identify which Mary he's talking about. So it's kind of weird how 11, he says it's the anointing Mary. And then in chapter 12, we receive the story. But you have to remember the, the order in which things were written and how the history worked. But probably what's the most famous story with Martha and Mary was Luke chapter 10. And a lot of you know this one. Martha and Mary have invited Jesus for dinner. Martha's busy preparing a meal. And she's frustrated with her sister Mary because she's not helping out. Mary happens to be sitting at the feet of Jesus listening to the teaching. And then Martha comes in and appeals to Jesus that she's been left alone to do all this work. And wants Jesus to weigh in to get Mary to start helping. And Jesus says, actually, no, Martha, Mary's got it right. She's sitting here listening. She's chosen the better part. So poor Martha often gets a bad rap in Scripture because of that chapter and that story. But what's cool about chapter 11 is we're actually going to see later on next week that this woman was a great woman of faith and a strong, had strong belief in Jesus. She's just like the rest of us. We all have, a, um, oftentimes we just... Uh, have we, even though we have trust in the Lord and faith in the Lord, we just might be immature sometimes in the way we <laughs> live out our Christian lives. Our priorities often get twisted up. It doesn't mean that we don't have a faith in Christ. The third thing we learn about this uh, Lazarus, though, besides his um, village and his relationship to his family, was that he shared a unique relationship with Jesus. Um, it says in verse 3 that the sisters... When they went, when they said, uh, sent word to Jesus, he said, "Lord, behold, him who you love is sick." Um, in verse five, it says, "Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus." So Jesus had a unique relationship. Where yes, he has a general love for every person in terms of you know willingness to die for sin, but in terms of the physical human relationship, he loved this family, and so that's a really unique uh, relationship that not everyone shared with him personally. One, one observation, not from the text, but you can find this in chapter 12, is I suggest that they were probably wealthy. Probably wealthy. In chapter 12, uh, you see them throwing a banquet at uh, their, their house. Now, they can accommodate at least 15 people in their home because the, the, the family's there plus the 12 disciples. So they have at least 15 in their house, which suggests a big home. And a commentary I read named Witherington, Ben Witherington, who was Dan's, one of Dan's professors at seminary, he wrote in his commentary that homes in that culture didn't usually accommodate that many people. So to have a big home, you suggest wealth. Remember Zacchaeus threw a party? He's a tax collector and had a huge banquet. Well, he's a rich, rich tax collector. He could have many people. So the fact that he could throw a banquet in their home with at least 15 people suggests a house of big size, which suggests wealth. But even more important, probably, is Mary anointed Jesus with costly perfume it's told there that it's worth 300 denarii, which is about one year's worth of wages. So unless it's a gift to her, that she happens to have one year's worth of wages. Like, look at, look, think about your salary. If you make, say, like anywhere from, say, 35000 to 150000 whatever your salary is, that's one year of your wages worth in perfume. That's a lot of money. So unless it's a gift, it's a good indicator they probably have money just to be able to pour that out on Jesus' feet and say, I'm going to sacrifice this. Put this to you. 
But most important to the biography of Lazarus for the context of this chapter was his health. We know from verse 3 that he wasn't doing well. Uh, verse 3 says, because when the sister sent word to him, they said, Lord, behold, the one you, who you love is sick. Uh, we don't know the kind of illness he had, but we know that it was just more than a few sniffles and a common cold because we see he eventually dies. So he obviously had a, a, major, a major health issue that cost him his life. We also know that this condition was severe by observing their sister's reaction in verse 3. Um, see, it's important to remember that when they, they sent word to Jesus that his brother was sick, their brother was sick, he was at least one day's journey away on the other <coughs> side of the Jordan River. Just look at 10 verse 40. Um, he says there that Jesus went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was first baptizing. So when they sent, when they're in Bethany, which is two miles, looking at the map, they're in Bethany, two miles from Jerusalem, and they send message to get Jesus, you can see the Bethany beyond the Jordan on the right-hand side, and that Jordan River, we don't know how, how far north they were on that river, but they were at least a day's journey. So the sister's reaction tells us that he must have been quite sick if they're willing to send a messenger at least a day's journey to go get him. Because whatever the condition was, people locally couldn't take care of his issue. So the death must have been imminent if they're willing to take a day's trip to go get him. And it's an interesting way they relay the message to Jesus. They say there's not a direct request for him to return. They don't go to him and say, quickly, Jesus, uh, hey, Jesus, come back to Bethany because my brother's sick. Uh, perhaps because, like the disciples, they knew the situation was dangerous in Judea. Uh, prior to this, the reason why they're in Jordan in the first place, or Jesus was in Jordan, is he ran away from Jerusalem because they threatened to stone him. So he's left Jerusalem to get uh, far away so they wouldn't get murdered <laughs> prematurely. So the fact that they, they're only two miles from Bethany and they go to get Jesus um, shows you that, again, that death is imminent. And so they don't, but they don't want to maybe up front ask them to come back because they know the dangers are looming back home. They also don't ask them to uh, heal from a distance, like the royal official's son in John chapter 4. John healed a boy in, a, in one town when he was in a different town. So they don't even ask him to heal in that way. But what they do here is they appeal to the affection that Jesus has for him. They say, to him, Lord, behold, he, he whom you love is sick. So we do know this, that they knew Jesus was, was resourceful, they knew he was trustworthy, and they believed that he was the only one who could bring restoration to his brother's condition, however he was going to go about it. So what was his response? We pick it up in verse 4. When Jesus heard this, he said, This sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Uh, Jesus' statement to the messengers that Lazarus' sickness wasn't going to end in death wasn't a declaration that Lazarus was going to be healed by him at that moment, rather that death was not going to be his final outcome. That's what Jesus was saying there. And even though Lazarus' death, or sorry, or illness was not caused by Jesus, it didn't mean that he couldn't use the opportunity and seize it to, to, to raise Lazarus from the dead and therefore bring glory to God and himself. I mean, what better way to bring glory to God and himself than to publicly demonstrate to the Jews that want to kill him that indeed he was the author of life. I mean, God created Adam out of the dust 
and brought life to this man. Jesus was going to take a similar situation where this guy is basically dust in the grave, like decomposing, and he's going to raise him to life. It's a declaration again that would only bring glory to himself and to the Father. So because Lazarus' death was an opportunity to bring glory to God himself, the timing of the resurrection had to be critical. It was a timing issue. And this is why Jesus' response to the messengers' news about Lazarus is of great importance in verse 5 to 7. He says, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. I think it's significant in verse 5 that he says that he loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus because his decision to stay two days longer after he hears about his condition seems like an unloving act. Right? If the situation was reversed and you went up to Jesus and said, uh, by the way, my, my wife or my son or my, my husband or whatever, my daughter is, is dying, um, can you help me? And, and our response was to delay, delay for two days. You'd be like, what kind of a loving act was that? But again, um, Jesus had a greater purpose in, in his timing. If he's going to bring glory to God and to the Father, the timing of the issue was critical. But it teaches us, a number of things, teaches us a number of things about the delay. First, it tells us that Jesus knew Lazarus was dead already. If he, if he was going to delay, it was like he already knew that he died. So likely when the messengers were coming to Jesus, he'd already passed away. And verse 11 makes that clear. He tells the disciples he's already dead. So there's, you know, there's, he's already gone. So we know Jesus knew he'd died already. So the ch- coming back early wasn't going to change the outcome. Second, because um, Jesus was going to use Lazarus' resurrection for the God, God's glory, the longer that Lazarus spent in the grave would leave no doubt that this was a miracle. Um, we know it was four days before, from the day the message got to him to the day that he actually showed up in Bethany was a four-day uh, time lapse. So again, if, it was, if he was to heal from a distance, um, people could question whether he was actually dead or they could, it could become hearsay. But if he waits four days and they actually have a burial and everyone sees the, the ceremony happen and he's in there for four days, then clearly if he's resurrected, it's going to be nothing, it's not going to be hearsay, it's going to be an absolute guarantee and a public demonstration that, again, he was the author of life. The third thing that delaying would accomplish would be that uh, he was declaring to the people that Jesus operated on God's timetable. He wasn't going to be swayed by anyone, even if that meant that the families he loved wanted them to act. It was God's timetable and, and nobody else's. And that's a pattern we see in the Gospel of John up to this point as well. So again, the delay was necessary to fulfill God's overall plan and the purposes for His coming. And we see the fruit of that in verse 45. After this whole thing goes down, it says, Many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what He had done believed in Him. Take away the four-day delay. Take away all of these things. And these Jews who were hostile to Jesus probably would not have come to faith in him. But it was this magnificent miracle that attested to who he was. So while Jesus' delay must have felt like an eternity to the sisters, it was not nearly long enough for the disciples. Look at verse 8. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you are going there again? 
You're going back? You know, the Jews had, the Jews had already made two attempts on Jesus' life at this point. They, they made two attempts to stone him, and not to mention their constant history of, of anger towards him and hostility. And like I said earlier, Jesus was in the Jordan area in the first place because he just fled from Jerusalem because of an attempt in his life. So the longer they could stay in the Jordan area was, was the better to the disciples. It made no sense to them that they should return to a, an area that was hostile and they knew that Jesus was in danger. Besides this, the disciples had just heard Jesus say that Lazarus' sickness was not going to end in death. So why did they feel the need to go back now? So knowing the disciples' hesitation, Jesus had to reassure them that everything was going to be okay. And so he says what he does in verse 9. He said to them, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. This is kind of a neat thing I learned this week as I studied. Um, in Jewish timekeeping, uh, twelve hours represented the whole day. So if I were to ask you, what's 12 hours? You'd say 12 hours is the literal time from, say, like, uh, like 9 to 9. That'd be 12 hours. Well, in the Jewish way of timekeeping, 12 hours represented the total uh, time that the sun basically provided light. So I'll give you an example. Uh, Witherington again said this. Uh, in, in certain seasons, that'd be 9 hours and 48 minutes, up to 14 hours and 12 minutes. And that makes sense to us because right now we're experiencing more time of dark than we are light because of the season. In the summer, it gets reversed. So don't think of when Jesus says there are 12 hours in the day, don't think 9 to 9. Think total time of light available to get work done. That's an important distinction because Jesus' main point was this to his disciples. He, like others, had work to do. And this time to accomplish this work was limited because the daylight hours didn't last forever. Nighttime was coming. And at the same time, as long as Jesus worked during those daytime hours, which was representative of God's timetable for his life, he would be safe, no chance of stumbling or tripping up. So Jesus really used the illustration to put the disciples at ease, to let them know that they did not have to fear him going back to Jerusalem, because Jesus was not going to die before his appointed time. But he still had work to be done. And that's why he had to go back. And what was one of those works? He had to raise Lazarus from the dead. And then let's read verse 11 together. He says, This he said, and after he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. Interesting to me that Jesus chose to use the word sleep as a description of death. Death, which was normally something to be feared in that culture, just like it would be in our culture, um, was nothing more to Jesus than a good night's sleep for those who put their faith in him. Right? Have you ever thought of death that way? Death, people in our culture uh, with, who don't know God or, not, or don't have assurance are terrified terrified of what's going to happen after in the afterlife. Jesus is saying this, if you have your faith in me, for someone like Lazarus, it's merely a good night's sleep. You can look, view death in that way. So death, which was a state of permanence, 
was only temporary in the hands of Jesus. The disciples, however, uh, completely missed what he was talking about. And we know this because of 12 to 15. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he was speaking of literal sleep. So then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. The reason why I feel this statement is so important is that we learn something about faith and what it is to walk in relationship with Christ. And the one-liner is this, faith is progressive. Faith is progressive. Look at that verse again in verse 15. He says, I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there, a.k.a. I was glad that I was not back in Bethany when I found out Lazarus was sick. And here's the reason why, so that you may believe. In other words, there's something more about your faith that you need to learn and you need to understand. You need to be strengthened in a certain way that you don't have now. And that's interesting because if I were to say to you, and the way we think is, if I were to say to you, well, do you believe? We speak of belief in terms of what? Initial faith. In other words, is she a believer? Is he a believer? What are we saying? That at one point they say, you know, they confess Jesus is Lord. Or if we say, oh man, like a great day today, so-and-so like believed in Jesus Christ. Again, we speak of belief as an initial, um, initial initiation into like God's kingdom. Well, here the disciples already have faith. They already have faith. There's plenty of evidence through the Gospels that they're already followers of Jesus. They've trusted them. Yet Jesus says to them, I'm glad that you have to witness me raise Lazarus from the dead. I'm glad that you didn't see me heal him earlier so that you may believe. In other words, wherever, whatever your level of faith is now, it has to become more. It needs to be strengthened. It has to be greater. And that's a great thing because these guys were going to leave the church one day. Where they were at now was not going to suffice. Why? Because the definition of who Jesus was was not strong enough to help them for the future. What did they believe? They were waiting for a political revolution. Jesus as the Messiah was going to liberate them from Rome. Jesus as the Messiah was going to basically bring salvation only to the Jews. Jesus as the Messiah was going to set up an earthly kingdom in which they could reign with him. That's why the sons of thunder said to Jesus, Hey, Jesus, when you come in your kingdom, can I sit at your right and sit at your left? Now? And Jesus says to them, uh, You be careful what you're asking for, because you know what you're asking for? You're actually signing up for a death warrant. They think they're signing, signing up to live as, as rulers of Israel, right? Here's another pr proof. What, what did Peter do in the garden when the, the Roman soldiers came to attack, get Jesus? Sword out, ear off. Why? Why go to physical violence? Because he's expecting a physical fight for political revolution. I'm going to defend Jesus so that we can maintain our status. It wasn't until Acts chapter 1 of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came, that everybody's lights turned on and they understood who Jesus really was and why he'd come. Really significant, we understand this. Um, these guys were in it for the physical kingdom primarily. There were spiritual realities to it, but it wasn't what they were expecting. And Jesus, where they were at in their faith, was not going to help them uh, into the future, understanding who he was, why he would come, and how to lead the church. 
So this miracle of raising him from the dead was going to make a declaration about Jesus they needed to know so that in the future they, 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 they would look back on this and go, oh man, I realize why I needed to learn that faith lesson then about who Jesus was. It's really cool. Well, seeing that there was nothing to, de- to deter Jesus from going back to Jerusalem, or it's actually to Judea, and heading back into hostile territory, Thomas speaks up. He says this in verse 16. Um, Thomas, who was called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go so that we may die with him. Like Martha, Thomas, Thomas often gets a bad rap in scripture. What do we know Thomas as? Doubter. Totally. We'll deal with that issue later on in a few months when we get there. But he's the doubter. Unless I see the holes from the nails in his hands and feet, I will not believe. But has anyone ever done a sermon on Thomas who was willing to die with Jesus for his cause? This is fearless Thomas. This is courageous Thomas. This is devoted Thomas. This is loyal Thomas. This is willing to lose his life, Thomas. Why don't we talk about that aspect of Thomas? Why is it always his doubt? I mean, Thomas' statement really helps us paint a picture of the tension that existed between Jesus and the Jewish leadership near the end of the ministry. I mean, he clearly had ruffled a lot of feathers, and the air in Judea must have been thick with constant threats and danger for him to recognize that to go back to Jerusalem would potentially lead to his death for the cause of Christ. Now the Gospels don't really record a lot of the disciples' emotions towards hostility that they faced as followers of Jesus. I mean, we don't know if they were angered by his treatment, if they were saddened, if they were frightened. There's not a lot in there about how their their emotions were. And that's why I'm grateful that we see Thomas say what he does. Because he summarizes the tension that they must have been feeling back then as followers of Jesus. But here's what's amazing about Thomas too. He understood that as a follower of Jesus, that death was a realistic possibility. Yet when he weighed the options of life on earth without him, or death in order to join him in glory, he chose death. So Thomas is very... Uh, is a very great model for what it is to follow Jesus for the, and, and his causes. So there's a few lessons I want to pick up from here, and let's finish with these. And this is the first one. Um, pretty straightforward. For the believer, death is merely a state of sleep. I'll look at uh, 1 Thessalonians 4.13. Great verse. Uh, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. This is the Apostle Paul speaking um, about uh, 20 years later, or so, 20 uh, 20 years later probably around there, um, speaking about uh, his understanding of death being sleep for the believer. First uh, Corinthians fifteen fifty one another verse talks about death being nearly sleep. So again, it's great for us who have put our faith in Christ because we know that death is not permanent, and in the power of Christ's hands, we are. It's merely just a, a blip on the road. 
Second lesson we need to pick up from here is that God can redeem situations in our lives, such as illness, and use them for his glory. He did that with Lazarus. He made sure that he took a situation that he didn't cause. He didn't cause his illness, but he's able to step in to Lazarus's life and use his illness, in event, in, which was resulted in death, and use it for his glory. And we see that in verse 45 again, because people put their faith in Christ because of what he did in Lazarus's life. Why God chooses to intervene sometimes in our, in our context, in our lives, and, and sometimes doesn't, I don't have a definite or definitive answer for why he chooses to, you know, act and not act in certain circumstances. But when he doesn't act, it's important to understand that he wasn't the cause of the disease or the illness or the death. And it doesn't mean that person wasn't loved by him. Those are just effects of living in a fallen, broken world. But when he does step in, he, ought, he will use it to bring it to his glory and often use it to bring people to put their faith in him and bring converts. I have a practical story that is exactly parallel to this. I was listening on YouTube to um, uh, a Muslim fellow who was studying to be an imam. He, uh, he was, uh, you know, Christ through a vision, like appeared to him. After he got the, the vision, he then dedicated his life to the Lord. He went to the Muslim mosques, started preaching the gospel, like outside or inside, I forget where it was exactly. The imams grabbed him, took him outside, and were just about to kill him. And as they were about to kill him, a woman came up and said, stop a Muslim woman, and said, stop, and the, the imam stopped, and she says, this man earlier prayed for my, my child who was sick and was healed in the name of Jesus. The imam said to the, the fellow, here's the deal, we'll let you live in one condition, the people we bring to you with illnesses, your Jesus must heal them, and if they don't, you're executed. So they brought the people from the village to the, the, the outside the mosque, this man prayed in the name of Jesus, to all the families who were sick, everyone was healed and he was allowed to live. And they released him. Here's the point. I mean, it's an exact parallel to, to Lazarus. God was able to take the illnesses of these people in this village. He didn't cause it. He didn't, didn't mean that he didn't love them. But because of the, the timing of the delay to, to, um, with this man coming to Christ and being willing to preach the gospel, he used those healings to bring glory to God and glory to himself. And that would have resulted in conversions within the village to Christianity. Not everybody, but the people would have still been loyal to Allah. Just like in verse 45, uh, you know, some came to faith and some rejected Jesus. Here too, ultimately, actually, this, the healing of Lazarus was the, was the precursor, or the catalyst, I should say, to getting him executed on the cross. Because that's when they start to really hate him after this event. So anyway, so God can still do this in very practical ways. The third lesson is faith in Christ is progressive. All of us are in different places right now in our walks with the Lord. Maybe we trusted Him for a few weeks, or maybe some of us have walked with Him for 25 years. But the thing is, God will continue to challenge you and test you. He knows where you need to grow. He knows where you need to be filled in with the gaps of misunderstanding of who He is and His purposes. And he knows what your definition of him needs to change. Because you've, you've been thinking about Jesus a certain way. And he knows that you need to be strengthened in a certain way in your thinking. And that goes for me as well. So the purpose again though. In, in, in this, whole, this sort of progressive revelation. Is that it's to strengthen your faith. Strengthen my faith. 
And hopefully out of this that we'll begin to trust him more and our faith will be lived out more and will turn us, give us more of an evangelistic heart to share the message with other people. So the key in this is that we just obey him in the small tests or the big tests that we're given. And as we step out in faith in those ways through our obedience, we will start to understand who Christ is in a, in a greater way. And so we will, to the day we die, be in a state of progression. You will, what you know now about Jesus will be totally different a year from now through discipleship, through your own personal studies, and if I do my job well on a Sunday morning. <laughs> okay? And the f- fourth and final lesson that I, want, I don't want you to miss is as followers of Christ, we need to understand that death is a realistic possibility for us. As followers of Christ, we need to understand that death is a realistic possibility for us. I wonder how many of us right now have the same devotion as Thomas. Let me go, let us go back to Jerusalem or Judea so that we may die with him. You know, I don't know where we're all at in this, in this, in our faith with the Lord. But I guess the question is, are we willing to die for Christ in this cause? At this point in time, we don't have to face any of these issues. But as the culture changes the way it is, um, especially uh, our culture morally and ethically walking away from Christian values, we might come face to face in the future with an issue where it's life or death for us in terms of who we're going to be loyal to. And again, Thomas chose that to be with Christ in glory was a better option than just to live life here without him. And again, I'm not saying that we're going to have to face this even, maybe, maybe we won't face it in our lifetime, but we have to be in our attitudes and understanding at this place where this could be a possible, possibility for us. You live in China, you live in Iran, you live in North Korea, uh, you live anywhere in the Middle East, this is a lifely, a, a daily life um, possibility for, for them, it would be for us. I'll finish with a story to illustrate this last lesson. Have any of you heard of the 40 martyrs of Sebast? Okay. Um, it's an event that occurred around 323 AD, so about 300 years after Christ was um, crucified. Uh, Rome was in power as the dominant empire, and the goal was, eliminate, the goal was to eliminate Christianity from the, from the Roman Empire. Uh, there was an army stationed in a place called Sebast, which is in modern-day Turkey. And on this, on this brigade, there was 40, uh, 40 professing Christians in the Roman, in the Roman army. So I don't know how many were in. Maybe it was a legion. I don't know. But there was, a, there was like obviously multiple uh, people in this army stationed in this town. But there was 40, 40 professing Christians. And uh, the, the emperor Lys- Licinius was in power. And he wanted to eradicate um, Christianity from the whole Roman Empire. When they found out these guys were Christians, they were told to denounce their faith or face execution. And the 40 wouldn't deny Christ. And so there was a progression of persecution, but one of the nights, they were, the 40 soldiers were taken out to a lake, told to take off their clothes and stand exposed in the bitter cold so that they would freeze to death overnight. Uh, and what they did in temptation was they set up warm baths beside the frozen lake so that at any point, if they wanted to deny Christ, they could just jump in the warm bath and be, and be saved. Uh, the guards were set up around the lakes to ensure that no one would escape. And... Uh, during that time, the 40 soldiers started to sing and out to the Lord, and they started to pray as, as a group and a unit to give each other courage and strength not to lose nerve. 
during uh, early in the night, um, one of the 40 of the Christians lost nerve and ran for the baths. One of the guards, overcome by the resolve and devotion to Christ, one of the Roman guys who was not a Christian, witnessing these 39 men standing for, for Christ, threw off his clothes and joined them to fulfill the 40 again. <laughs> Pretty cool. And the next day, they all, they all lived through the night, but the next, uh, a couple more events happened and they're all eventually martyred for the cause of Christ. But what was really cool is, like again, like I said, one lost nerve and denounced the faith because of the temptation, but one Roman who witnessed their devotion jumped in and fulfilled the first 40. Again, I don't know where we're going gonna to be in all this, but again, they were like Thomas. These 40 men recognized that to die for Christ was, was, um, was their ultimate purpose and goal in life. And they would be more devoted to him than they would be to their Caesar and their king. <laughs>